All right, Fabio, can you hear me? Oh, let me unmute you. Sorry. There you go. Can you yeah, hear me? I can hear you. Yes. Awesome. Can you hear me? I can hear you. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Long time no see. I know. It's been a, it's been a few years, I think, right? Yeah, I was thinking about it, and I realized it's been uh, over five years. I think it's yep. probably like in the six range. I think so, too. Yeah. And I think we both have more hair right now. I, I was going to say that. It's the COVID um, style, right? Yeah, well, you've got a good COVID quaff going. Well, thank you. You too. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank it, you. It looks very good. Uh, I'm super excited that uh, you accepted my invitation to do this. Um, nope. I just, uh, you have such an amazing background. And even um, not knowing at all until you sent me your, your, your bio, I was like, oh, this is... This person has an amazing story. And then when I read your bio, I was like, wow, it's uh, even more amazing than I thought in the beginning. Um, I should let people know who listened to this, that we met, uh, like I said, uh, probably about six years ago, I was teaching out of a CrossFit gym at the time. And I had a student who was friends with Fabio. And it was at a time where I was like new-ish to movement, like a year in. And he knew kind of the things that I was excited about and, and spending time on. And he said, you know, you've got to come with me to see my friend Fabio perform in this show called Streb. And, you know, I just took him at his word and it was not far from where we lived. It was in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And my mind was completely blown watching this show, um, which I'm going to let you explain here in a moment. Um, because it was this like, it felt like it was a circus contemporary dance stunt show. And I loved it. And then afterward, um, my student, Michael, introduced, uh, introduced me to Fabio, but that was the only interaction we had. And, and I don't really remember what we spoke about at the time, but I do remember we became friends on Facebook. And then when I first achieved a handstand, like a, over 30 seconds, I remember writing something about it and putting it out there, maybe saying, oh, you know, it was 35 seconds and then you commenting something like I counted 39. <laughs> and I think that was not long after we met. So very possibly. Yeah. So since Streb is where we, we crossed paths and I think it's a really amazing show. Can you talk a little bit about what that show is, what your role in it was just broadly and, and, and also, of course, introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, it's funny that you're saying that, Kyle, because I, I joined Streb when I was 28, mm -hmm. and I was uh, about to retire. I mm -hmm. thought, you know, I don't want to do this acrobatics stuff anymore. It's too hard on the body. I'm ready to sort of, you know, take a step back and move into more of a mind, body, spirit kind of work. And then I joined Streb. And then I stayed with Streb for 14 years, and I'll, I'll, I'll wow. tell everybody what Streb is uh, in a little bit. But uh, so it's, it's interesting hearing that from you and how it just all came back to me. How like wow, you know that was a uh, 14 years of my life. So um, I uh, I'm Fabio Tavares, and uh, I uh, was born and raised in Brazil, and I moved to New York when I was 24 in the late 90s. 
And I came here to dance. I came here because I wanted to learn um, a deeper, more meaningful and sustainable uh, methods of movement. And, and I came to New York without speaking a word of English. Maybe I spoke like three or four words and I started taking classes. Um, I knew, you know, I knew where to go. I had a couple of people that I wanted to um, study with, but sort of that was my journey. So uh, by the time I was uh, in my late twenties, I was pretty determined on, on doing performance and postmodern dance. And because of my background as a competitive gymnast, and I was a physical actor. Uh, my training was gymnastics, acrobatics, and physical uh, theater. I thought that I, I, you know, I thought that I had already exhausted all of my resources in that department. I didn't want to do handstands anymore. I didn't want to do backbends and flips because that's what I did growing up, and that's what I had done my whole life. And I felt like I just want, you know, I want to do something else. And then I, I see an ad for a strab audition. And a, a coworker of mine said, she, she said, you're coming with me. I, you know, I already signed you up for it. And she took me to the audition and I auditioned and it, it was a three day process. Um, she got a huge bruise on the first day of audition. So she didn't come back on the second day. I ended up coming back on the second day. Uh, and well, so actually I ended up missing the first day of audition because I had a conflict with work. So I came in on the second day. So everybody already knew, you know, pretty much uh, the, the choreography and they knew the, what was gonna happen. And, and I knew nothing, I came in completely green. And so she got the bruise, she didn't come back and I came back on the third day and they hired me. And this was in December, 2003. So is, um is a company, a performing company uh, founded in, Created, directed by Elizabeth Strab. And Elizabeth Strab is an American um, extreme action choreographer. And Elizabeth, uh, she's now 70. She started making dances in the 70s. And, and I think, you know, and, and her, her questions uh, about movement had to do with uh, um, a lot of uh, her uh, sort of passion had to do with like gravity and impact. And it had to do with like uh, questioning, uh, why do we always dance uh, right side up on the bottoms of her feet? Why can't we dance using different parts of the bodies? And why can't we dance uh, up against walls? And why can't we go upside down? And why do we have to always land on our feet? That was her thing, you know, and she's like, well, ballet is pretty uh, uh, predictable because you're always doing a plie, you bend your knees and you jump and then you land on two feet. And she said, you know, that's just a very small surface of the body, the bottoms of the feet. And she's like, what about the rest of the body? Why isn't the rest of the body uh, also, you know, being uh, landed on? And, and so in the early 80s, she founded um, Strab. I think it was called Streb Inc. Uh, or Ring Ringside Inc. then or something. And then eventually it evolved into Streb Extreme Action, I think in the mid nineties when she won a Mac MacArthur Genius Award. And I came into Streb in the early 2000s and I knew a little bit about their work. 
I'd seen them before. I think I saw them at the Joyce Theater. And I was uh, very blown away by by the work because I was like, what is this? Like, who are these people? Why, you know, what are they doing? <laughs> like, I was very intrigued, you know, because it wasn't quite acrobatics, but there were some elements mm-hmm. of acrobatics. But then it was kind of like very industrial, you know, with the machinery and the motors mm-hmm. and things hanging. And yet they were all wearing like body suits, like, like as if they were modern, dan- modern dancers. And there were all those thick, fat mats. And the whole thing seemed like it was very uh, intriguing to me. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, and then so I auditioned, I got in, and I, next thing I know, you know, I'm, I'm stuck with them for, in a really good way for 14 years. And my role at Streb was, at first I was a company member, a dancer. And then I believe four years into Streb, I was, uh, I became the uh, associate artistic director. And so I started working as uh, uh, the rehearsal director and Elizabeth's assistant. And I've always taught at Streb. You know, since I, I came to New York, I figured that one thing I could do well, even though I didn't speak English, was to teach movement. Mm-hmm. And that's how I uh, sort of got my first uh, working visa. I was teaching uh, gymnastics to kids. And, you know, and I've always enjoyed teaching. I've always enjoyed, uh, enjoyed um, you know, teaching kids. Uh, I love kids, don't get me wrong, but I, you know, I've done my share of teaching kids. But, uh, you know, I just, I learned so much from watching them and I learned so much from teaching them, you know? I had a teacher once who said, you know, if you want to learn how to teach or if you want to learn how to perform, in some ways, they're pretty much the same thing. Uh, Spend your time with very small children trying to teach them or spend your time with very old people and try to teach Mm -hmm. them because you're going to get the most honest responses. Like if you can handle children or if you can handle, uh, you know, very old people, everyone in the middle is a cakewalk. Yeah. And it, well, and the thing with Streb was, it's, uh, it was interesting is like, because Elizabeth would ask us questions about movement and, and time and space that were very uh, eccentric questions, mm-hmm. you know, and in observing kids, uh, I got to uh, witness uh, numerous times kids doing the things that Elizabeth would ask. So she would say, can you jump from up there and land on your knees? Mm-hmm. And our first response would be like, no, you know, like, why would I land on my knees? Mm-hmm. You know, and then you would see like a little boy, you know, running around the, the, the thing and jumping and landing on his knees mm-hmm. and getting up and running, you know, like nothing happened. And so kids are true movers. You know, in a way, it's like, you know, they're so spontaneous and their bodies are so available to mm-hmm. movement that they just, just sort of bounce off the ground, get up and, you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 she was really interested in that. And I started um, paying more attention to how kids move and how kids um, respond to the stimulus of action, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, especially when they're fearless, especially when they feel safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to do whatever because you know it's like insane what they can do mm-hmm. and then as we get older we go like oh you know 
Right. Or if you're passionate about movement, all you're really trying to do is just do what the kids are doing. You're trying to, you're exactly. trying, you're trying to work back to the stuff you, you, you stop doing. Yeah. We spend a lot of time sort of trying to go exactly trying yeah. to go back to where we came yeah. from. And it's not about like a, a an anti-aging process. It's really, you just want like the physical abilities, you know, I, I always, I used to write on our, like, um, our Facebook page and stuff for movement Brooklyn, you know, that we're trying to reconnect with our movement potential. And it's yeah. just really about like doing what you yeah. could do as a kid, you know, and, and the spontaneity, spontaneity is like a, a great comment. I think people often get caught up on like, Oh, well, they're so bendy in there and, and, and they get into these shapes and they, you know, create shapes, but the, the spontaneity is really the big thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think we also become, um, there's this idea of uh, being right. Mm -hmm. And there's, uh, particularly among performers, there's this uh, element of, of perfectionism. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to do something, you know, it has to be done in a certain way with a certain degree of perfectionism, with a certain degree of, and, and, and that a lot of the times gets in the way of us being, you know, like you said, spontaneous and moving naturally like the mm -hmm. way we were um, designed for movement mm -hmm. um and you know and the, the thing with streb then just to to uh sort of conclude this this streb chapter i uh i started to get really busy in doing admin work for the company and and being the associate artistic director and it was very it became clear that i couldn't do my job well enough as a performer and as a director mm -hmm. and then you know if i were to focus on you know I, I had to pick one thing and i thought well i'm getting older um you know let me just focus on directing people and, and rehearsing them and hiring them and choreographing and you know and teaching mm -hmm. but then i couldn't stop performing you know because it was like a, a bit of an addiction and mm -hmm. a bit of like you know, there was always like somebody would get injured a day or two before the show or a week before the show. Mm -hmm. and, and I was one sitting on the bench like that knew all the parts or most of the parts. And I, because I rehearsed them. And so I would always inevitably, inevitably end up performing again. Mm -hmm. And that was, it became a, a like a, 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 a longstanding joke trip because I tried to be retired for like six years. Mm -hmm. you know and um and then also something interesting that happened was in 2010 i started to train to become an alexander technique teacher mm -hmm. and this was uh i think it was right before because we did the london olympics in 2012 and it was around that time a little before that What happened was I uh, started to feel better in my body. I started to feel more available to move and more ready, you know, to, to dance. And then retiring started to, it, it didn't seem like it was such a great idea, you know, because I, I was getting older mm -hmm. and I was feeling stronger Yeah. in a way, you know, so it was like, it's so anyway, so there was that sort of really so, interesting so, moment. So what, I mean, like I said, this show is like, it feels almost like a stunt show in so many ways. It was like, I remember people running into walls, falling off of high apparatuses and 
lots of falling, lots of running into each other, lots of running into walls and these things. And when you said that you arrived there for the audition, you wanted to retire at 28 because you had done all these things physically and it sounds like you were beaten up a little bit. What was it about like running into things and falling on things that made you feel like, oh, you know, this is, this is okay. I'm done with the other things, but this feels okay right now. Well, good question. I, I think I accidentally, uh, real, you know, I fell into the strep pit. Yeah. And I realized that, oh, I'm actually good at this. Yeah. You know, because I would see people struggling. Like there was this guy in the audition that he couldn't point his toes to land. Because in strap, you have to point your feet as you land. You don't want to land with your toes stuck under because you can break your toes. Mm -hmm. So it was a very new technique. Mm -hmm. But then I Im immediately sort of adapted to that. So I realized that I was fast to adapt to things. Mm -hmm. And going upside down was never a problem. Doing flips in the air, things like that was never a problem. Uh, and I had experience performing both circus and theater and, and, and dance. That suddenly I realized, oh my God, this is all I've always wanted, mm -hmm. you know, in a way, because it combined all my skills, my strength. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth, uh, we uh, always had a great relationship and she gave me enough room to kind of do my own thing. Mm -hmm. You know, so I had a very uh, vital role, I think, you know, all the dancers have in um, contributing to the choreography. So there's a lot of moves that we performed that I invented mm -hmm. that were moves that just came out of, you know, myself kind of organically. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I realized, oh, my God, I'm good at this. Mm -hmm. You know, so it, it's maybe not the time to retire yet. Right. It was like you found yeah. another and it was also inspiring creatively. Exactly, exactly. So what is that, like, uh, you said that you, you got to participate in the choreography and helping create, what, for, for a, sh a performance like that, for a show like that, what is the creative process? Like, where do you begin? Is it like someone comes in and said, oh, I had a dream I was falling off a building and this happened and you guys kind of go from there. How much of it did the other performers bring in and get to share what, yeah, I'm curious how, how a show like that comes together. So uh, how it works is Elizabeth usually uh, brings in a piece of equipment, you know. Um, well, let me, let me rewind a little. She would bring in a drawing mm -hmm. and say, hey, guys, come over here. You know, this is what I'm thinking. Bam. And she would show us like either like a giant hamster wheel mm -hmm. or like a, a wheel of death, a small version of the wheel of death from the circus or like a rotating um, ladder. Mm -hmm. uh, with the horizontal axis in the middle or, you know, so she would bring in those things and she says, what do you think? And, you know, and, and we would all be, always be like, you know, super excited and, and mildly terrified at the same time. And then the piece of equipment arrives mm -hmm. and there's usually a process of like either engineers around us just saying, walk, walking us through you know, especially if there's a motor or something, you know, you know, how it works and what's safe and what's not safe. Or the people who designed it, a couple of times the Spanya brothers uh, would come in and say, you know, and, and sort of give us a, a bit of a tutorial. Mm -hmm. And then Elizabeth um, would create rehearsal time around that piece of equipment mm -hmm. where we would just explore things. 
and she would very much sit in the background and occasionally ask a question. Can you, can you do this? Can you go that way? Can you, somebody hold here while somebody else gets on top and mm-hmm. could you rotate, you know? So she would ask things and, but essentially just collect mm-hmm. information. Mm-hmm. And we usually do that for, um, I, I think it's fair to say a couple of months, few months. Mm-hmm. And then she um, would videotape things or film things and start to collect information and start to put things in order. And then she comes in and, and the nice thing about Streb is that you don't really necessarily have to learn a choreography five, six, seven, eight, mm-hmm. but you learn the sequence of events mm-hmm. and we would name events. So each event had a name. Mm-hmm. Now there's a, a funny, <laughs> uh, you know, the name, the names were super funny, um, but there was uh, one event called clown car which mm-hmm. was when everybody got on the piece of equipment and some people were upside down, some people were on top of each other, some people weren't in, part, in this one particular piece of equipment. So she would name them and she would sort of organize them in order. Mm-hmm. And then we would try to solve that puzzle by saying, okay, can we go into clown car mm-hmm. from like Amy's tables? And then can we get out of Amy's tables and go into marriage? Mm-hmm. And then can we get out of marriage Mm-hmm. and see if we can feed into, uh, I don't know, Teletubbies, Teletubbies or something, you know. So mm-hmm. there was always, and we would spend more time then figuring those things out. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, and then she starts editing things. Mm-hmm. And I think it's fair to say that it takes about a year and a half or two years for Elizabeth to finalize mm-hmm. a piece. Well, I, thought, yeah. I used to, um, I, I follow Streb on Instagram and I would always see when they would put up um, their audition notices. Yeah. I just thought it was really interesting. It was not saying like, we want people with X number of years of, of acrobatics or, or a background in gymnastics or a background in dance. It would say, we're looking for people of all different kinds. If you're a martial artist, if you're a dancer, if you're this, if you have a background here, come give it a try. Yep. It's almost, you're, you, and I remember seeing that in the show, it was like some people came from clearly different backgrounds and had some had different roles that they played, almost like a football team. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I think what she realized was that she had outgrown the dance world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and dancers, uh, even though they are so quick, to learn something mm-hmm. and they were so easily adaptable. Uh, a lot of dancers tend to be super careful with their bodies and mm-hmm. super careful when it comes to risk taking. Mm-hmm. So it takes a very specific type of animal mm-hmm. to do that work. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have a strong body, mm-hmm. strong joints. You have to have the willingness to feel uh, discomfort. Mm-hmm. You have to have the curiosity to ask questions and without being afraid, you know, mm-hmm. making mistakes. And, mm-hmm. and you have to, uh, uh, you know, just have some appetite for risk. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, and, and I think that she realized that Sometimes, because you know, I wasn't necessarily a professional dancer. I I came from theater and circus. I had some dance experience, 
the woman who's there now as the associate artistic director, Cassandra Joseph, mm -hmm. was a, um, a competitive gymnast all her life. Mm -hmm. So she also has experience in performance and dance, but primarily she was a gymnast. Mm -hmm. So I think she realized that there were people from theater and from sports and from other modalities mm -hmm. that perhaps had something to offer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, and I also think that because she has a very democratic approach to life, mm -hmm. she also wanted that to, to, uh, to show that on stage. And, and, and based on your background, you kind of could wear a lot of different hats in the show, right? Because you weren't just a gymnast, weren't just, you know, if you say dance was maybe the thing that you were the weakest at, but you I mean, it sounds like you had a pretty eclectic mix of all the other things. Correct. You could jump in and, and play any role. Correct, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I stayed for so long because it, it, it just came so naturally to me. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know I had that in me, you know? Like yeah. when we got into the hamster wheel, the giant hamster wheel, this yeah. must have been 2004. Mm -hmm. I, I, how I realized that my mind worked in a different way than the dancers' mm -hmm. minds worked. Mm -hmm. You know, where they were concerned on like right, left, right, left. My thing was like, well, let me just jump in there and hang and see what happens if I spin around and go upside down and try to, you know, so like I had a different. Your, under, your understanding of space is so different from somebody who is an acrobat, someone who's moving through the air, like your proprioception, it, was, it sounds like you wanted to like feel the space. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. And it was uh, sh shortly after that, that I realized, and I, I spoke with Elizabeth, I said, I think we have to say from now on, when we're hiring people that tumbling skills are a plus, you know, because the, the whole thing was like, she didn't want to say no, but you know, I want, I want everybody to come mm -hmm. and, and audition all body types, mm -hmm. you know, uh, all ages. Mm -hmm. She said, you know, I don't want this, like, because there's this idea in dance that the guy's strong mm -hmm. and uh, the girl is kind of like light and skinny. And mm -hmm. so the guy can carry the girl, right. Can lift the girl up. And in Streb, we don't do that. So, you know, like the, the girls can, can lift the guys up too. Yeah. And so there's sort of that sort of gender fluidity. Yeah. Because everyone's strong. Not well, just and, and everybody runs into each other. All the time. Yeah, all the time. So, so I'm curious, as much as I love Strab, I, I'm so curious about your, your, your life starting when you were like a child in Brazil. Mm -hmm and you're studying acrobatics and gymnastics and these things. Can you talk a little bit about that? How did, how did you fall into those places? What, what did your life look like then? Um, well, what a trip. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I was, uh, you know, I grew up being like the middle child, mm -hmm. uh, sort of very shy, quiet, I think I realized I was gay when I was really young and that kind of messed me up, uh, it, you know, because I, like my brother was like the soccer player. He is like the epitome of the, the jock, mm -hmm. you know, play all the sports and did all the things that boys were supposed to do and the cars and the bikes. And 
and I was like this quiet kid, very much of an observant, um, and and I wanted to dance ballet. You know, I wanted to. I, in my mind, I wanted to be a ballet dancer because I wanted to fly. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know. I couldn't say I wanted to do ba ballet. You know, and and physical therapy, uh, physical education class. It was you know it was one of biggest traumas in my life because. I couldn't play soccer. That's all they did. Mm -hmm. And the girls were doing dance and gymnastics and other fun things. And the boys were playing soccer. Mm -hmm. And so when I, I, I felt very much like disconnected from that reality. And I was a bit chubby growing up. And I just felt really uh, not in touch with my potential. Mm -hmm. you know? And I can't remember exactly when, but I think I met somebody like, like a friend in the building or whatever that did gymnastics mm -hmm. and she said hey come to the training one of these days and i went and watched her her practice mm -hmm. and i was immediately in love with that i said i want to do that i want to fly it that you know i want to try those things and what the funny thing was that i um i was very much of a self-taught uh, person mm -hmm. i taught myself how to do a backhand spring in my bedroom wow yes how old i must have been um 12. wow yeah 11 or 12. and what i did was i i put a lot of um comforters i folded comforters like layers of comforters uh -huh. and i think my process was just like you know i put some cushions some pillows and and i knew in my brain that i could do it you mm -hmm. know like because I never hurt myself of uh, mm -hmm. doing those things. And I remember that I was in my bedroom uh, and when I did this backhand spring and I put my hand on the ground and I put my feet on the ground and I got up and I was like, I did it. I did it. So I did it again and I did it again and I never unlearned that. Mm -hmm. And then my next challenge was going to connect the round up and the backhand spring. Now, mind you, this is all me doing this by myself in my own little fantasy world. And eventually I connected around off and back in spring on, on a field, like on a, on a grass field. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I know, I learned how to do a side area all by myself. Wow. From what, you know, I would watch her, this, this girl do it. Mm -hmm. And I would go and watch her training and she would talk me through it. And then I would just spend time on my own doing it. So when I came into my first gymnastics lesson, mm -hmm. I could do round off, backhand spring, backhand spring. Mm -hmm. Probably it wasn't the greatest form. And I could do a side aerial. Mm -hmm. And so I lied to them that I had already, you know, that I was like intermediate. <laughs> I had already taken gymnastics in the past. Mm -hmm. And and I think, you know, it was one of those things, one of those cases where I was dying to move growing up. But I was afraid because I wasn't good at soccer. You know, I was afraid of, you know, the, the ball and, and the rules and the boys mm -hmm. and all that, like sort of you know higher higher what do you call, you call it the, the the system right you know but then but then i had all this potential for movement dormant inside of myself yeah that was never nobody ever explored like you know i had to write a paper recently mm -hmm. and i talked about the lack of role models growing up mm -hmm. you know as a gay kid in brazil like i didn't have role models i didn't have anybody telling me 
hey, you know what? Don't worry about it. If you, you, know, you suck at soccer, that's fine. Let's see what you don't suck at. Mm-hmm. You know, let's encourage you to do something else then. Perhaps, I don't know, you know, anything. There's so many other things. And gymnastics was one, you know, was what saved my life, I have mm-hmm. to say. And, and, you know, I think it's amazing. Like when you hear about great athletes, there's so many, like the people who are really great. There's all these stories that are just kind of like the one you told where you're talking about teaching yourself something and just going through that process. All these great athletes have the same story. It wasn't like they jumped immediately into formal training. They were in their version alone in their room, inventing games to try to tackle and, and learning how to learn, um, which is more powerful than being taught. Uh, yeah, so it's amazing to hear you talk about this like really like child deliberate practice thing um, because it, it speaks to a lot of the, the the people. It's not immediately jumping into some sort of system at those ages. Right. And because I, I was able to tap into that potential somehow, mm-hmm. I think I saw something mm-hmm. and I saw that and immediately I recognized it, mm-hmm. the power of action. Mm-hmm. You know, that girl doing a side aerial or that, you know, those boys doing a backhand spring, something in the action mm-hmm. touched me and I recognized it. And I said, I can do that too. Mm-hmm. Or I want to do that too. Or that's going to be my superpower, you know, as, as, as a child mm-hmm. who, who felt chubby and who felt like uh, disconnected from everybody else mm-hmm. and, and, and very unskilled, mm-hmm. you know, so that was a really cool thing. And so from 13th to 16th, I was uh, a competitive gymnast mm-hmm. and I made it the, the team. I made the city team uh, very shortly after that because of my floor skills. Mm-hmm. And then vault was not a problem and, and high bar was, but you know, like, like rings and pommel horse were a little more challenging. Mm-hmm. But when I was uh, 15, the circus came to town and it was a big circus. And my coach, I don't know how she was approached by somebody from the circus. Mm-hmm. She said, you know, there's an audition here to be an acrobat at the circus. And they want you and you and you and you to go and audition. Hmm. And, and I, you know, and I, I was the only guy who got in. Me and two other girls, small girls. And essentially I got this, my first paid gig at the age of 15 being a professional acrobat at a, a nationally renowned circus in Brazil. Wow. And that was a life-changing experience. You know, so that was like, did you go on a tour or was it kind of stay, did it stay in one place? So because I was underage and the circus came to our hometown, my hometown at the time, and the circus stayed in town for a month. Mm-hmm. Our contract was for that whole month. Gotcha. But when the circus left, this was in the summer, I left with them. I, I went one town over with them. <laughs> my, parent, my parents were out of town. And so I took advantage of it. And I said, you know what? Because I fell in love with the circus and the lifestyle. And, mm-hmm. and I uh, took a bus and I, I went to the next town over for, I, I can't remember, like maybe a weekend or two weekends. Mm-hmm. And then my, my parents called and my, my father said, I'm coming to pick you up. You're, you know. There's no way you have to come home and you have to go back and finish school. And, and when you turn 18, if you still want to join the circus, then it's your life. You do whatever you want. But. So, did, so did you rejoin? 
No, I didn't. Okay. I didn't because by then I realized that I, you know, I wanted to be a dancer mm-hmm. and I wanted to do acrobatics and, and we had moved to a bigger city mm-hmm. and I joined another group then. So, but the circus, I always carry that with me. I mean, what a really amazing experience to be 15 performing in the circus. And it's, it, you know, I, when I was in, when I was studying theater, when I was in like high school, I was part of this theater group that was outside of my high school. And there was a young man in the program and he was like maybe like three or four years younger than me. So he must've been like 14 or 15. Um, and he was in the group and he was a really accomplished gymnast in my state. and. I was blown away. I mean, he was doing backflips and all these things all over the place. And I forget if he told me or if his parents told me or if I'm just making it up after hearing your story. Um, but even at that age, there was already like the beginning of like recruitment from like mm-hmm. the like the Cirque du Soleil shows. Mm-hmm. They already kind of were like having their eyes on like young successful gymnasts at that time. I don't know if he had been offered a contract, but they were almost like, hey, when mm-hmm. you're done with school, give us a call if you want to tour or move to Vegas or something. Yeah, so so the story continues. Uh, mm-hmm. which, so it's really interesting because I, in, when I was in my early 20s, mm-hmm. I uh, started a troupe of acrobats. There were seven male acrobats that I sort of brought together. And we started doing, you know, performing parties or like nightclubs. And we were like, like the glow-in-the-dark outfits and we would hang from the ceilings and so anyway so uh during that time uh I, somebody i can't remember how said there's an audition for Cirque du Soleil in Sao Paulo mm-hmm. Sao Paulo is you know it's a big city in Brazil and you guys should come mm-hmm. and so we got on the bus me and the seven other boys and we went to audition for Cirque du Soleil. And we knew nothing about Cirque du Soleil. I mean, very little. This was in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we auditioned. And I remember when it came to my uh, audition, they asked me if I could do a split. Mm-hmm. And I said, sure. So I did a split. And they said, can you do it with the, you know, both sides? And I said, sure. I did a split with both sides. And they asked me if I could do like a, like a Russian split. And I said, sure, you know, I'm, I'm always being flexible. And, and then they said, okay, you're in. And I was like, wow, was that it? You know, like, and then other friends, they asked to improvise and dance and other things. But for me, they only asked for me to do the split. Maybe I did a couple of tricks. I can't remember, you know, exactly. But then I got a phone call from them saying, you know, we would like uh, for you to send us your passport. And we want to have your information. And we'll be in touch with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so later on, I talked to somebody and they said, we're hiring 11 male acrobats for this new show. Mm-hmm. And we would love for you to join the show. And I said, sure. And this was right when emailing started. And I, you know, and then my friend, was, my friend, my sister was emailing this lady from Montreal mm-hmm. and they had my passport. And they asked me if I was going, if I moved, you know, or anything to let them know, notify them. And so I went ahead and told everybody I knew in Brazil that I had joined Cirque du Soleil. Oh, of course. On, the, of course. on the media, yeah. newspaper. <laughs> yeah. 
And then like a month, two months go by, three months go by, four months go by, and I don't hear from them. And then next thing I know, my sister emails the lady in Montreal. And she says, oh, you know, we have his information on file. If we need whatever, you know, if we ever need him, we'll, we'll let you know. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Nothing ever felt, again. No. And I felt so bummed <laughs> and so bummed because I was like, but then luckily I was already in another show that was a, a, a big show for Brazil mm-hmm. that I toured for two years and I was doing acrobatics and singing and dancing. Mm-hmm. But get this, many years later, I'm with Treb and we go to Montreal to perform with Cirque du Soleil. Uh-huh. And I'm finally performing with them, 2004. Oh, was, was this like alongside them or did you guys do some sort of collaboration? So it was their 25th anniversary or 20th anniversary or something. Mm-hmm. And it was a show, it was their show, but it, they had special guests. Mm-hmm. And so we brought some of our pieces and we joined them in some of the big, you know, the more like of the, the general stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I got to meet some of the creators and choreographers, whatever. And I remember having this conversation with this lady. Uh-huh. over a drink or something and I said well when I was 19 and I told her the story and she said Fabio I know exactly what happened she said we had a contract with Philippe de Couflet uh-huh. who is a great uh, French choreographer who had choreographed the winter games or the opening ceremony for the winter games very uh-huh. I- incredible artist I've seen a couple of his shows in New York uh-huh. actually and and the idea felt through because they had a whatever they had a, a, a falling out, oh. and so the whole idea of the eleven male acrobats and the whole concept of the show fell through. So they had to start a whole new show. Oh, it had nothing to do with that concept, and that was the show that I had been you know quote unquote hired to be a part of. Well, who knows? I mean, listen. You're, you're still a performer. There, there's still a chance you could end up in a uh, Cirque du Soleil show here at some point. <laughs> it's not, it's well, not the realm of possibility. It's true. Yeah, you know, it's. Uh... I'll send them an email and just tell them the kind of things that inspire you. You know, like oh, you, we need a, an act that involves risk taking and acrobatics. You know, for a 45 year old, you know, 45 year old. Retired acrobat. <laughs> exactly. Who's, who's tried to retire 13 times. For the, yeah, exactly. For the last 20 years. So then what was it that made you decide, I'm, I'm leaving my, my troupe that I'm performing with and, and I'm going to go live in the United States? Well, I think I had reached a plateau in Brazil. I, was, uh, I performed with a singer. His name is Milton Nascimento. It was a big show. It was this big comeback. And I did all the, and we had acrobats in the show. And so, and for two years, this is like, I'm in my early twenties. We're touring and traveling and, and performing. And I, and after that, I went back to my hometown and I realized that I wanted to study movement. You know, I wanted to deepen myself in this field that I didn't know it, it existed. And by that time, I had already started taking some um, contemporary dance classes, started learning about some movement systems, mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, and things that I became immediately um, fascinated with. Um, 
And so I told my parents, I said, you know, I, I, I want to go study in New York and I want to study particularly two things, client technique mm-hmm. and the Alexander technique. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and I, I, I came and I just, I thought I was going to be here for six months to a year, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I was going to study and learn everything excuse me, mm-hmm. in one year. And I was going to come back to Brazil and I was going to start That's what my own dance. Everybody company. thinks who moves to New York. When I moved to New York in 2005, I was like, I'm going back home in 2006 or seven. And now it's 2020. Right. What, what is it that, you know? Yeah. So, and, but for me, it was, what was interesting was that I started taking client technique classes and and I realized that wow, this is so complex and so challenging, mm-hmm. and and it's like martial art. You know, you don't just learn anything from like doing it for three months. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a movement guy. You know, you can you can stay in the surface, mm-hmm. and sure, you can learn a, a form mm-hmm. in a few classes, mm-hmm. and that's it. Or you can go past that and go into a deeper place in yourself, mm-hmm. in your body, mind, spirit. And that is ever changing all the time. That's never the same. And you and so and I remember that six years later, I was like, wow. And I was, you know, taking regular classes maybe two, three times a week. And then after those six years of only doing client technique, mm-hmm. I think that's when I joined Strad. I, I realized that I wasn't breathing properly. And that's when I come back to taking Alexander technique lessons. Cause well, before you, get into the Alex- before you get into Alexander, can you, can you explain and talk about the, the client technique? Sure. Yeah. Sure. So, uh, so Susan Klein, she uh, was she i mean she she would be 70 now in november mm-hmm. and she was a young dancer in new york who had injured her knee pretty severely not once not twice but three times wow and it, i think the third injury was she was skiing it wasn't even she wasn't even dancing but you know she had a promising career ahead of us as a professional dancer and she was told by a couple of doctors that um, that she needed surgery. Mm-hmm. And we're talking seventy in the seventies, early seventies, and and surgery wasn't you know something desirable back mm-hmm. then. And they said it's either that or you're going to have to live with the limp for the rest of your life, something like that. And she was terrified. And I think she went to some PT, whatever, and they made her strengthen her quads and her quad got huge and the knee got a little better, but it didn't quite solve the problem. And then she started looking for alternative solutions. Mm -hmm. And she met a chiropractor, I believe, that had done some energy work and and then she i think also met with a bonnie bainbridge cone from body mind century mm-hmm. who was starting body mind century then and she started meeting with people that had also went 
a different route mm -hmm. seeking help. Mm -hmm. And she realized that there was something that goes beyond the muscles because mm -hmm. everybody talks about muscles. Mm -hmm. And there was something that went beyond the muscles and that's how she got to the bones in her um, uh, attempt to heal herself. Mm -hmm. And she, um, she recovered, you know, it, it took some time, mm -hmm. but she recovered and then she, she changed her thinking. She, she discovered something else that wasn't muscle based. Mm -hmm. And she started rolling down with her feet parallel. Mm -hmm. uh, and she started hanging over, mm -hmm. uh, connecting her hamstrings down mm -hmm. through the bones and through the heels. And she started uh, working out this language for herself mm -hmm. that had to do with how the pelvis sits on top of the legs. And so what she understood was that there are four deep uh, muscles of support in the pelvis, four, uh, four muscle groups. Mm -hmm. The hamstrings, the pelvic floor muscles, the psoas, and the six deep external rotators. Mm -hmm. And the, these uh, muscle groups play a very energetic role in moving the pelvis on top of the legs. Mm -hmm. And she started seeing that a lot of people with knee problems or back problems didn't have their pelvis on top of their legs. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And she... That, and that was her whole sort of discovery mm -hmm. was that if the pelvis is on top of the legs by means of activating those deep muscles, mm -hmm. then the weight goes down through the pelvis, through the legs, through the feet, into the floor. And so you get enough of what I call ground reaction force, what she calls a, a return or a, a counter thrust mm -hmm. up from the floor. Mm -hmm. So you can move your body. Um, and she, in, you know, and I've studied with her for a very long time. She's a dear friend of mine. And she said this in one of her classes one time. She said, you know, we don't dance on the floor. We dance from the floor and with the floor. Mm. And I remember that stuck with me because, you know, because, because, uh, yeah, we're, you know, we're in the gravitational field 24-7 unless we're in water or in outer space, mm -hmm. underwater or outer space, but we're you not. Know, otherwise, we're we're dealing with these forces, mm -hmm. and the skeletal system is there to sort of help us um, go up, away from the ground. That's why we're organized the way we're organized, mm -hmm. with the pelvis on top of the legs and the vertical spine and the head on top of the the, the spine. Right. And so, and the muscles work with the bones. Mm -hmm. and, and, and she, she has a language that's very unique to client technique. And the class consists of usually a 90 minute stretch class, very slow. Mm -hmm. And you hang over mm -hmm. and then you bend your knees and you work with your pelvis. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes we go up and down. Sometimes you go side to side. Sometimes you work on the tail, sometimes you work on the sits bones, sometimes you work on the trochanters or the SI joint. Mm -hmm. And it's all sort of, it, it all revolves in relationship uh, around the pelvis and mm -hmm. its relationship to the legs and the spine and the hand. And, uh, and what I realized was that things started to shift and things I didn't know I, I had inside myself. Mm 
began to wake up in this work. Mm-hmm. And, and, but it's the thing that I, and I love flying, but the thing that I find that a bit limiting mm-hmm. is that Susan's dream and goal was to help people dance better. Mm-hmm. And she comes from the dance world. So in a way, it's a class that is designed for dancers. Mm-hmm. Although she would say that that's not true, but like I, I couldn't have my mom or my dad take a client technique class mm-hmm. because you know the nature of the work. You have to hang over, mm-hmm. you know. So you're hanging over a lot. You're upside down with your legs straight. It's very, uh, it's intense work, and it's not for everybody. Or if somebody is struggling with some sort of uh, chronic pain, mm-hmm. you know, you have to be careful before you have people hang over for too, you know, too long or whatever. So, and it's also my. Like- it sounds like it's meant to be done in collaboration with some other movement practice. It's not supposed to be the practice. Correct. You you need to you need to have some sort of um, understanding, mm-hmm. a basic understanding of your body, mm-hmm. um, unless you're in in the room with the teacher. You know, with Susan or myself, or there are a handful of teachers worldwide then we can come and put our hands on you and help you. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you're in a room and you see somebody struggling and students struggling, there's, you, you, you're, you're quick mm-hmm. to help them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've just been thinking of online teaching, how it's like, you know, it's tricky. It changes the game. It changes the whole game. It's funny though that you, you talk about this, you know, being in the pelvis and it's like, so many different practices in martial arts have captured that and communicated mm-hmm. it in different ways. I forget what I was reading recently and it was talking about, you know, focusing two inches below the navel, you know, yeah. like that's the center. It's the center of everything. You know, that's where yeah. we balance, that's where we, how we organize over our feet. That's where we breathe to and from. And, and uh, so many of these things come back to like, there's a lot of these same nuggets that like transcend across so many different movement modalities right and that's such yeah. a big one yeah but it's like you know uh capturing that in, in in this way is interesting yeah the pelvis man it's the the powerhouse right it is the center it mm-hmm. is the center and, and it's interesting acro- and, as an, and as an acrobat nobody knows it better than you that's for sure Right. I mean, yeah, in, in a in a very intuitive way, though, because you know, because they don't tell you that stuff in gymnastics. I mean, at least back in the day, mm-hmm. you know, nobody said anything about that bones or pelvis or breathe or you know, mm-hmm. all, it, all they care is that you 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 do it and it's high and fast and you know and you do it better every mm-hmm. time, uh, which I find it so uh, interesting, you know mm-hmm. that. People don't tell you those things. They expect you to do amazing things, mm-hmm. but they don't tell you how the body functions, how mm-hmm. the body works in gravity, um, how you know where your hip joints are and where your head neck joint is and where your shoulder joints are and what the spine like. Nobody teaches you that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And somehow I feel like they expect you to know or they don't know that themselves and they can't teach what they don't know. I don't think they know it themselves. I think that's the thing. It's almost like, you know, like I've heard lots of stories. I was messaging with someone who's been taking class with us at one point. She was talking about being in capoeira class and, you know, this almost like lack of empathy from some of the teachers where it was like, oh, you know, like do a mukaku, you know, you just kind of like go, you just got to like jump. You know, there was like no progressions or anything. It was just like, yeah, right. watch, you just makaku. Right. And, uh, right. And I think that that's kind of what it is, especially like yeah. when you're with kids where you're just kind of like, yeah, let's just go. But there yeah. are these things that you're talking about that are really like rich, important pieces. And I really want to get to the Alexander technique because you said you, you had to kind of go back to Alexander and really invest some time there because you felt like you weren't breathing properly. Right. And I think that, you know, if we were to go even a step further, we talk about, you know, two inches below the navel, this center of our body, this, you know, critical center. Um, but the other big one is the breath. And I think it's something that transcends a lot in their different approaches. Um, but it's, it's number one. Correct. Um, Correct. So I'd love to hear about Alexander and also kind of how you entered into that world when you arrived. So um, I first heard of Alexander in Brazil when I was taking contem uh, contemporary dance classes uh, and that sort of blew me away. I was like, why, what? Like, cause you know, as an acrobat, like I would just talk about it. Nobody mentioned joints, nobody mentioned thinking, nobody mentioned breath. Uh, nobody showed me an anatomy book ever until I came to this woman's class. And she said, we're gonna lie down on the floor and you know, just open your arms and bend your knees and think about your femur bones. Like she said something like, think about letting the heads of your femurs drop down into the sockets. Mm -hmm. And that was it. I was like blown away. I was like, what? And then she said, come back next week. We're gonna talk about the relationship between the head and the spine. And I came back and she showed me, a, you know, an image of the, I think it was the atlas or how the head sits on top of the spine. And I just, I was completely, utterly hooked. I was like, what is this? Mm -hmm. And she says, oh, this is, you know, the Alexander technique. And although she wasn't a certified teacher, she used some of the principles in her teaching. And, and I never stopped obsessing about the Alexander technique. So can you, get, that. can you describe it just a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So how I understood then, it was just this uh, way of moving in harmony with your thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't know much about it. So, I, you know, it's like it's sort of like you're waking up an internal sense in you as you move or before you move. Mm -hmm. and and so when i came to new york i started taking classes with a lovely woman in williamsburg group classes and then i stopped because i was like oh you know this alexander thing is too light it's too gentle it's too delicate it's too expensive and so that's when i focused in client for six years and i joined strev and things got really uh demanding physically mm -hmm. 
And there was this one time, and I'll go back to a, a better definition of the Alexander Technique. But there's this one time that we had two shows in the same day. Mm-hmm. And it was probably like it was a home season. And we were maybe like in week like four or five. And strap shows are really hard. And I was in a moment where I was probably in every single piece. And, and we finished the show and we had like a two hour break before the evening show. And we had to do another show. And I just, I was lying down on the floor thinking, I can't, you know, I can't breathe. I mean, you know, I was like, this is so hard. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do the second show. And then it occurred to me that if I lie down on the floor and I maybe did an Alexander sequence that I had learned in the past that had to do with releasing the jaw mm-hmm. and softening the hyoid bone, I thought maybe that would help. Mm-hmm. And I had, a, I had such a transformative experience by myself, lying down, I put a couple of books under my head, which is what we do in the Alexander lying down lesson. And I just quieted myself down and I went through the sequence that, that I had learned years ago, mm-hmm. you know, and the jaw released and the neck released and the chest opened and I got up and I felt like brand new, completely re-energized. And I thought, holy shit, this is really powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to go back to Alexander now. And, and so, and that sort of began my journey of when I went back. Mm-hmm. Then to take private lessons because Alexander can be taught privately or in groups. Mm-hmm. And I studied with a woman who um, she was already really old, you know, when I studied with her and she taught at Sarah Lawrence for many, many years, like 40 years. She was this lovely lady. Um, she's still around. <laughs> and she told me, she said, Fabio, you're really good with your hands. And I think you should train to become an Alexander teacher. And so that's when I went to, to pursue my training. Mm-hmm. And so just to sort of then my understanding of the Alexander technique completely changed. Because mm-hmm. I thought for a long time, it was just about like improving my posture, you know, my postural reflexes, mm-hmm. improving the relationship between the head and the spine. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's, that's all true. But what the Alexander technique really is, is a, a simple system of body-mind that helps you identify patterns of tension on the mental level as well as on the physical level. Hmm. Because mental has a physical component and physical has a mental component. There's you know, no men- mind without body. There's no body without mind. Mm-hmm. And but first, even before we move, we observe our thinking, mm. because a lot of the times, uh, and I, what I learned in school is that there's no thought without a muscular component. A lot of the times, we're thinking, mm-hmm. and our thought is all over the place, and so our muscles are like completely all over the place also. So then suddenly you have to get up and move and do something, move an arm or open a mouth or, and that we don't even realize that we're doing that because we do it all day long. Mm -hmm. And, and suddenly there's a way to do that 
that's very economical, mm -hmm. that we don't spend too much energy, that we don't use too much muscle energy, mm. and that we don't compress ourselves or hurt ourselves. You know, that those, a lot of these patterns are har harmful. Mm -hmm. And so essentially what we learn in the Alexander Technique is a, a transformation into consciousness. Mm. which is really deep you know there's people doing it for 50 60 years mm -hmm. and you see uh alexander technique teachers in their 80s moving so beautifully you know and, and even in their 90s mm -hmm. still teaching you know riding their bikes um you know it, it's it's really incredible what this work can do Mm -hmm. somebody and um you know and so i sort of decided to dedicate my then whole life into doing this work and and that's when i realized that i had to leave strab if i wanted to build my practice and become a full-time alexander teacher mm -hmm. and so that's essentially what i've been doing since 2014. so you um, teach you teach alexander full-time now that's your that's the full show well that's sort of the the dream <laughs> you know, since I left Treb, I've been going to spending more time in Brazil. Mm -hmm. uh, this is 2017. So for the last three years, I've been teaching in Brazil quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And I got involved there with uh, a, a dance school and I started teaching workshops and I got commissioned to do a show there. So I've been spending sort of, I think, you know, maybe 40% of my time in Brazil and 60% of my time here in the U.S. And that does, it kills my practice here and it doesn't help me build a practice there. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this year I, I decided, and now COVID just sort of sealed yeah, the deal uh, for me. Yeah. I decided I'm not, you know, I'm staying here in, in the U.S. Yeah. For, for a little bit trying to, I'm, I'm going to try to build the practice for, for real. Just since you said that the breath was what you brought you back into it, and I've been reading um, a number of books about breathing and breath. Um, I'm on my second book right now about pranayama, um, which is like yoga, breath control. Mm -hmm. And I really, I'm so with you. I just think that it is the thing, that's the thing. And it's also the thing that's given almost the least amount of attention just by people in daily life. You know, it'd be like someone owning a Mercedes and then just putting diesel in it because they don't know how to drive it. It's like the, it is our, it is the biggest way that we're interacting with the, the, the world, right? We're inhaling and exhaling air in and out, you know, without it, we, we don't exist. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what's happening with your breath and, and, and how we're gaining a better understanding of, of how to breathe through the Alexander technique. Yes. So Alexander started off as a, a you know, he, he called his work respiratory re-education. Mm. He was known as the breath man. Mm. This is early on. This is late 1800s, um, early 1900s. So he wanted to teach people how to breathe better. And then what he realized, and this is huge, he realized that if the body was organized properly, and I'll say quote unquote properly, we're breathing 
naturally to our full capacity. Mm-hmm. So that he said that the focus, yes, it's in the, it's in the breathing, but because we were designed to breathe naturally, spontaneously, that we have to, in a way, leave ourselves alone and off mm-hmm. so, that, so we can breathe properly. So he would, at some point he says, if I don't breathe, therefore I breathe, or something like that. There was a famous aphorism uh, that, because he said, every time somebody thinks of breathing or they try to breathe or they try to take a breath in, mm-hmm. what he realized was that people use the, their aux- aux- auxiliary muscles to do that usually neck and chest you know and he says that the truth is the full breath uh it's it's mainly your diaphragm Mm -hmm. working and and one thing that's really interesting in this alexander work is that we focus a lot on letting the back breathe and no other work that i know talks about how the back is supposed to participate in the breathing activity as much as the Alexander work. Mm. And then what we learn is that we have a lot more lung tissue in the back than we have in the front. So when you go to a doctor and they want to hear your lungs, they go with the little thing with the stethoscope in, in your back and they say, take a deep breath in. When they want to hear your heart, they come to the front. Mm-hmm. So the truth is we have... Uh, and Jessica Wolf, who's specialized in the art of breathing, she teaches something called the art of breathing. She says that there are 70% of our lungs are behind us. Hmm. And what's really interesting is that the ribs connect with the spine also behind us. And each spine connects with the ribs in three different ports. Each, sorry, rib connects with the spine in three different parts. So every connection between the rib and the spine has a tremendous amount of um, potential for movement. Mm-hmm. And so we have 12 um, ribs on the left and 12 ribs on the right, and they all come out of your spine. Mm-hmm. So whenever we inhale or exhale, those ribs, the 24 ribs that connect with your spine, each rib in three different places, they have a tremendous um, potential for movement and the diaphragm originates in the back and, and comes, but but then coincidentally it's the the part of the spine that at least now in the world we're in and the way people live is this part of the spine that has the most tension yep right so with the tension we're not just talking about a mobility issue in your spine or in your shoulders we're now talking about a breath issue yeah, that, holding our breath. People hold their breath. In your spine and your posture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because of the diaphragm energy digitates with the psoas, mm-hmm. which is a deep, deep, deep uh, hip flexor, what happens is if you hold your legs, you squeeze your legs, you hold your breath. And if you hold your breath, you're affecting your legs. Mm. So it turns out that it's all connected. It turns out that if, you know, when you look at a child and you see a child breathing, that it's a three-dimensional activity, the chest mm-hmm. and the sides and the back, everything is moving. When you see a, a puppy sleeping, 
mm-hmm. or an animal, you know, like they breathe three dimensional, three dimensionally with their full torso. Mm-hmm. And then the arms and the legs are um, indirectly participating in that motion because it's a wave that comes into your body and it's a wave that leaves your body perpetually. It never stops, right? Whether you're sleeping or awake or conscious or unconscious, the breath never stops. Right. So it's really trippy. Well, you know, it's it's so, I like I've... I just can't tell you enough how much I've been thinking about breath for like probably the the last year or so. Amazing. Uh, but I've caught myself as I'm like, you know, I think typically near the end of like your sleep, your sleep cycle or whatever is when you're in like REM sleep. And when you're in REM sleep, your body's actually paralyzed because you're dreaming potentially. And the the mind doesn't want the body to like do something within the dream, you know, that's why some people sleepwalk. Um, But I've found myself sometimes when I'm coming out of sleep and I'm slowly starting to wake up when I'm like in that in-between world where I'm just having a little bit of consciousness, I can gain like awareness of how I'm breathing and that thing that you're talking about is happening. If I'm laying on my side, I can almost imagine the way a dog looks. I can feel my ribs going up and down and kind of everything moving with it like this, um, I don't know, I'm trying to ex- explain what I'm seeing myself doing in the camera here, but this like big in and out. And then when I fully from it, come into consciousness, it's like all that tension kind of returns um, because now my nervous system is taking back over. Right. Uh, but I, I notice it when I'm coming out of sleep, this exact thing, the way I see like a child sleeping or an animal sleeping where the whole body is, is uh, kind of vibrating together. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah, there's. Uh, I think you're getting in touch with this natural rhythm, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and Jessica Wolf says that breathing is three-dimensional shape change. Mm. So suddenly, if we really, you know, like you said, if you you go really deep and you start listening for your breathing, for the movement of the breath, mm-hmm. you notice that it's it's shape change in a three-dimensional way perpetually mm-hmm. perpetually mm-hmm. you know um i used like i took a yoga class or like i studied yoga for a while when i was very young mm-hmm. and this woman would say okay now we're gonna inhale in six and i wanted to fill up the bottom of your lungs in two and then fill up the middle of your lungs in two and then fill up the top of your lungs in it doesn't exist. It, it, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Whatever she was asking us to do, it, mm-hmm. it's impossible. It doesn't exist. It's like saying, now you're going to breathe into the bottoms of your calves for two and then the middle of your calves. I mean, it's like, it's, in, it's in, you know, it's imaginary imagery, mm-hmm. imagery. Mm-hmm. Because when we inhale, the entire lung expands three-dimensionally. Mm-hmm. Like it's like you're blowing up a balloon. You can blow the bottom of the balloon and then the middle of the balloon. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's like the whole thing expands. Yeah. And so 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 do the lungs. Yeah. And they only do that because the diaphragm descends. Yeah. And it spreads out. Mm-hmm. So the air can be rushed in. Mm-hmm. So in a way, the lungs are not muscles. They don't move by themselves. Right. We, the diaphragm 
is what causes the, the air to come into the lungs. Mm. And once you start to understand that, you go like, oh, you know, once you have a body felt under experience of what that really means. Because a lot of the times, you know, we're up here trying to, you know, whatever, take a deep breath in or, and the truth is, no, this only uh, gets filled because what's underneath mm-hmm. the lungs, this really powerful muscle that's also considered an, an organ, is doing the work yeah. all the time. When so I, anyway. I, re- I, re- I read this book, um, uh, The Art of Breathing by Nancy Z. And she had this oh. really great imagery and it's, I see it now in the, when you said it's three dimensional, but the imagery was, I mean, she used a lot, like in every chapter, she'd give like some sort of like piece of imagery to imagine what a breath should look or feel like or something. And one of them was an up, upside down dropper, right? Mm. The dropper's turned upside down and it goes right down your throat. That's the top of the dropper. And then the lungs are the, the part that you squeeze. Mm-hmm. And, but I see now that it was this like idea of um, the, the, the three-dimensional breathing where it's not just from the bottom up. It was like you're squeezing it and it expands everywhere as it pulls the, the breath in. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But I, you know, like I said, to bring it back to what, I, what we were talking about in the beginning and why people get caught up in like the Alexander being a, a, a postural thing you know on the surface level that's what people see but the 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 breath and the posture go together yeah right you can't just go study breath without addressing the postural issues yeah which i think is and i would and i would go even further to say kyle that uh conscious there's no consciousness Mm -hmm. or awareness because now it's a field right Mm -hmm. We talked up, we, we're talking mindfulness and meditation and neuroscience. You can't examine and study those things without including the body and the breath. Right. You can't, you definitely can't explore consciousness because again, I read something recently where it's like, you are actually changing your consciousness with your breath. Yeah. Yeah. Consciousness yep. is constantly changing depending on how you're breathing. Even if we're just talking about going from being angry to being relaxed. Yeah. Right, but that's why you know you can go even further in all these different directions. So I, you're, that's such an interesting point that like that is that is our gateway to exploring and understanding consciousness. Yeah, and 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 the body, for instance, right now you and I, right, we're seating, and we're making contact with the chair or stool, and the chair is making contact with the ground, mm-hmm. and your feet are doing something somewhere, and your hands are somewhere, and your head is somewhere on top of your neck, and so there's actually stuff happening inside you right now that's keeping you from falling over that's keeping your head from like being tossed back or toppling forward that's keeping you from um uh you know like you're breathing your heart is 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 beating and there's blood flow happening and i mean there's so much going on yeah right now just as we sit here still and talk right that it's and it that when people talk about awareness and consciousness and and they leave the body out mm-hmm. it's like well but there's no like there's no one thing without the other you know mm-hmm. i thought that for the longest time that our brains got bigger and our bodies got smarter and you know but the truth is we've evolved physically 
and the brain had to catch up with it. The brain came later mm -hmm. because our ancestors had to, you know, flee and they had to go find shelter and food and hide in trees and whatever and escape the crazy uh, weather, you know, situations. That, so it's like they had to learn how to, to do all of that. And the brain was, the brain caught up. Right. It wasn't the other way around. So I think it's really interesting that the more people begin to integrate awareness, body, and mind, and that includes the breath, that I think the more uh, of a chance they will have to live a whole life, you know, a, a more wholesome life. And whatever they choose to do, you know, if you want to work out, if you want to do ballet, if you want to ride horses, if right. you want to fly the trapeze, if you want to whatever, drive cars or, you know, sit in front of your computer, you have a complete different experience. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is what, you know, I think a lot of times people, especially in our culture, they're always like, well, I'm looking for my thing. Oh, I'm going to be the yoga person. I'm going to be the this. And I'm sure there are people who've even walked into Alexander and been like, oh, this is going to be my thing. Not understand like, no, 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 this is like, this is just part of being a human. Like this is part of, like practice doesn't ever end. And it's meant to be integrated in, in a holistic way that involves a dynamic moving body. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Because it, it, in the end, life is about breath. Mm -hmm. And life is about movement. And there's no, there's no movement, there's no life. If there's no breath, there's no life, period. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's amazing. I, I, I had a, like an afternoon experience with, um, with Alexander when I was like 17. So now I feel oh, wow. uh, I'm, I'm very inspired and I'm ready to, to jump on your classes if they're happening online. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, I'm teaching um, a class uh, at, through movement research. Okay. And I can send you this information later. Every Wednesday is at two o'clock. Mm -hmm. And it's an hour class. And we usually do a little talk about, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll pick a couple of principles to talk about. And we'll walk around a little bit, do some, some thinking. And then we lie down and do a lie down lesson, mm -hmm. also known as uh, constructive rest or semi-supine. Mm -hmm. And then we get up and talk about it. And it's sort of free, pretty sort of chill. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd love for you guys to come. It's free. Oh. You know? Yeah. And I'll be there through uh, mid-August. Okay. Can pe but I mean, can people donate as well? Yeah. Yeah. There's a donate donation button there. Yeah. Amazing. I am, like I said, I'm super into to the breath and, and what's happening there. I love your comment about all these things that are happening in our body and we, we aren't even noticing and we, we really take it for granted. I was listening to a lecture while I was out for a walk the other day and, and the guy who was talking was saying, that's the, that's the thing, you know, when people like um, say we're all Buddha or we're all God, you know, that's, that's what it is. Look at all these amazing things that are happening inside us right now. Like we are doing it. Yeah. Um, which I think is a, a really amazing thing that people don't think about very much. And, and to bring it back to just breath one more time, that breath is this one of very, very few things that we can control and will happen on its own, which is this really magical piece. Yeah. Yeah. 
Jessica said that breath is a, what is it, our closest connection to the spirit, mm -hmm. something like that, you know, mm -hmm. and, and how the uh, diaphragm is so deeply connected with our emotions. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're scared, the first thing that's going to change is your breath, your breathing. If you're happy, the first thing that's going to change is your breathing. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're anxious or you're worried or you're excited, every all of those emotions are going to affect your breathing in a different way. Mm -hmm. And so when she says, if you have enough control or enough conscious of, consciousness of your breathing, you can then affect those things. Well, that's what I was about to say. It doesn't, it doesn't just go from One, I'm scared to my breathing. Sometimes, especially now in the world we live in where there's we're not getting the full range of, of experiences and emotions on a regular basis that we would have experienced in nature. Now, when people talk about having these reactions or panic attacks, lots of different things, it seems like there's a good chunk of it that's connected to like not having that primal connection to our breath and all of a sudden something happens in the breath and it goes upwards to the brain. Totally. Or are like, whoa, totally. having these yeah. emotions, I'm having these feelings, what's going on? And the truth is, it's like, it didn't begin in the brain. Some Something may have happened downstairs that's coming up. Absolutely. And it, it's all so connected, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love it. So is there any, so every Tuesday, or excuse me, Wednesday at 2 p.m., yes. um, is there anywhere else? Are you avail Are you doing any sort of private coaching or anything online? So I'm also teaching a client technique class. Okay. And that's, you know, I, I, and then it's my own, like I do it privately uh, on Tuesdays and Saturdays. Okay. And it's also open to everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, client is an hour and a half. Okay. And client has a, you know, it, it's, I'd say it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> okay. I'm sure you're not, you know, <laughs> so uh, it's a slower class. And it's, we take our time and we hang over and we, ban you know, so it's very sort of in a way, the stakes are a little higher. Okay. And, and I'm doing that Tuesdays and Saturdays at 10.30 a.m. Okay. I'm also happy to send you the links. And then I ask for a suggested donation of like 10 bucks or whatever yeah. people can afford. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm doing the Alexander on Wednesdays and Klein on Tuesdays and Saturdays. Okay. And I have done some private coaching and teaching also in the past. Mm -hmm. I'm not opposed to doing that either. Yeah. It's just also difficult on over Zoom. It's such a different thing, right? Yeah. So can people find this just at your website? Yes. Well, actually, uh, my Instagram is better. Okay. What is your Instagram? Just uh, for people who end up listening to this. Uh, oh, sure. So uh, my name Fabio, A-T-N-Y-C. Okay, Fabio at NYC. Correct, AT for Alexander Technique uh -huh. and NYC, yeah. Well, I look forward to uh, taking the class, but I really do look forward to getting an opportunity to, when the world changes, to, to exchange some, some things. And yeah, we should get together, we should do something. Yeah, I've gotten fun. so into some work that I just feel like is totally up your alley. Uh-huh. So I, I've really started reading and watching a lot from Fighting Monkey. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Um, they're, Fighting Monkey? Yeah, you should look up their work. Uh, so Joseph and Linda, they're the creators, philosophers, teachers. And uh -huh. 
they come from a dance background. I think they also own a dance company uh, somewhere in Europe mm. and contemporary dance. And I guess without butchering this too much, I think what happened is they were looking for supplemental work for their dancers. So they started developing tools for the dancers mm. to supplement their professional dancing. And what they ended up creating was this thing called Fighting Monkey. And it's a... Um, it's a, it's a process or a methodology. I'm sure they don't want to put any sort of name on it, but it attacks movement from a lot of different ways. And a lot of, um, a lot of it is built around exploring communication through mm -hmm. movement, um, which is all movement is in, in so many ways. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that the work they do is really fascinating. I think it's really powerful, um, but it's not just stuck in, dance you know they're they're exploring grappling and jujitsu and they're exploring all these different realms i think it's just um i think it's it's totally in your wheelhouse i'll, I'll try to remember to send you some stuff after this oh cool hey, i'll look it up yeah find yeah. the monkey i'll look it up now yeah yeah it's the the rootless root dance company is the is the company they own okay yeah okay let me write that down cool but I'll, I'll send it to you. And then, like I said, we'll, we'll figure out some time. We'll, if, if this goes on, you know, for the next few months, we'll, we'll communicate over zoom and, and I'll, I'll share some stuff and then, you know, we'll exchange some more information. Great. Great. Awesome. I'm game. I need to get back in shape. <laughs> yeah. some, someone who is uh, in the talk right now, he just said that you would fit in perfectly at one of the fighting monkey intensives that they do that you would love it. Okay. All yeah. right. All right. I'm game. All right, man. Well, um, so Tuesdays and Saturdays, Klein Technique, Wednesdays, Movement Research, and it's Fabio at NYC. Um, That's correct. For Instagram. I can't thank you enough. I'm so excited. Your story is, is so amazing, and you tell it so well. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hey, listen, I love talking about myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for allowing me to do. Thanks for giving me a platform to do that, Kyle. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. But I mean, listen, when someone brings a good story, it makes it totally worth it. I'm like, oh, I'll kick back and I'll listen. This is. Uh, I feel like I. Uh, the only thing I'm missing is a nice little like fire next to me to to enjoy this. I know. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's been a, a real pleasure talking with you. You're also very gracious and and kind. So thank you. All right. Well, I can't wait to, uh, like I said, meet in person, exchange some more information, have a really great night, and then uh, we'll, we'll exchange some emails in the next couple of days. Sounds great. Bye. Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye. Bye, Kyle.